Well, good morning, and it's good to be back with you all. We're gone a couple Sundays on vacation, but nothing like home, and it's good to be back in the pulpit. And along those lines, you can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 as we resume our time going through this book of the Bible verse by verse. You probably heard the phrase, the clothes make the man, is made popular by Mark Twain, who himself donned, famously donned this all-white suit. He did that to draw attention to himself. In one way or another, what you wear makes some statement about you. Going back even further, Shakespeare used a form of that phrase in Hamlet, the, the apparel oft proclaims the man. What a person said or wears says a lot about him. You can tell a lot about someone by their clothing. In addition, there's this interesting phenomenon where your clothing has the ability to change the way you think and feel about yourself. Certain clothing has the power to affect one's behavior and treatment. For example, there was a group of college interns that was performing a, a sleep study on some teenage students. And these interns were not much older or taller than their subjects. But they found that when they wore a white lab coat, the students and their parents treated them which, with much more respect and pretty much did whatever they said. And they themselves felt a lot more confident in what they were doing. This one simple change, a little white lab coat, made all the difference. I trust this resonates with you. Most of you know firsthand that feeling you get when you, when you dress up. You put on that, that nice, new, sharp-fitted suit. You stand up straighter. You carry yourself differently. You feel a little bit more important. Or for ladies, you put on a new dress or a ball gown. You, you feel beautiful. You, you feel good about yourself. Clothing really does have the power to shape how we see ourselves and how we act. And funny enough, the Bible teaches that same lesson, only spiritually speaking, that our spiritual clothing has the ability to shape how we see ourselves and how we act. You know, before salvation, it would not be wrong to envision yourself dressed in rags. Spiritually speaking, you wore tattered, torn, sin-stained rags, which made you unfit to enter God's house. You and I were to God unclean, unholy, set apart, cut off. And our behavior reflected our attire. Our old self was enslaved to sin. But a big change takes place out salvation where you come to faith in Christ Jesus. And several passages of scripture explain that change using a clothing analogy. And at first, Christ removes our sin-stained rags. And we're forgiven our transgressions. The old self is, is put, taken off and thrown away. And then he clothes us with a perfect spotless robe of righteousness. The prophet Isaiah looked forward to this. Isaiah 61.10. He said, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And we know that's not just any righteousness, but the perfect, spotless righteousness of Christ. Christ himself, such that the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians 3.27, that all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We've put on Christ in salvation. That, that's a wardrobe change. Now, of course, Scripture is not talking about an actual change of clothes or garments, but a change of nature. And this wardrobe change is just a metaphor that depicts a change in our nature at salvation. And this is what Paul captures clearly here in Colossians chapter 3, using this, the same clothing imagery. For example, if you look back at verses 9 and 10, he says, Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. Those terms laid aside, put on, they're the terms used to speak of taking off and putting on clothes. And that's what's happened in salvation. We've taken off the old self, the old nature and have put on a new self, a new nature, a regenerated nature. By his power, our spirit has been reborn on the outside. We look no different, but on the inside, in our spirits, we've been made new. We're new creatures in Christ. We're wearing new clothes, so to speak. 
And this new garb should most definitely affect how we see ourselves and and how we act. We've been learning here in Colossians 3 that who we are in Christ is who we are. That's our true self. God sees us clothed with Christ, forgiven, made righteous, all by his grace. And that's how we are to see ourselves. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this wardrobe change, this change in nature then, becomes the basis for how we live our lives. Most physicians know this, and I can attest, growing up with my dad being a doctor, that when you put on that white lab coat, just you change. Your behavior changes, your actions change, your attitude changes, your, your speech changes. It's like you become a different person. Well, we have put on Christ and his righteousness, and that's a big change. The clothes make the man, that, that remakes us. And now from that, and because of that, well, our, our behavior should change, our actions should change, our speech should change, our attitudes should change. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching here in Colossians chapter 3. It's so essential to just basic Christian living. Again, verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another. Why not? Why should you no longer lie to one another? Well, he says, because you have laid aside the old self. It's not who you are anymore. You're not wearing those sin-stained rags. You've put aside those evil practices. Instead, you've put on this new self in Christ. And so you should be different. Who you are on the inside should now come out of you. Being clothed with Christ in the inner man, you should live differently. And now in our passage today, we're going to see that the positive side of what that new living should look like is found in verses 12 through 14, or at least it's begun to be found in verses 12 through 14. That's what we'll cover this morning. Let's, let's read that now. Colossians 3, 12 through 14. He carries on. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Here, Paul is continuing to develop the thought of how our new position in Christ directs our behavior. And we've seen the negative side, how not to live because the old self has been put off. But here now we see the positive side, how we are to live because the new self has been put on. It's come alive. This passage helps put that together. So let's, let's try and study four aspects of the new self that we might live according to the wardrobe of Christ four aspects of the new self, starting with the basis of the new self. Number one, the basis of the new self. You see in verse 12, how it starts with this word, so, or so then, maybe therefore in your translation. What he's saying here is coming right out of what he just said. And so far, Paul has had much to say about the ethics and the foundation of Christian living. We live the way we do because of the change that God has already wrought inside of us. But one thing I want to make sure you keep in mind is that although in the moment of salvation, we are truly regenerated, reborn, made new, we're not yet complete. We're new, but not complete. You're like at salvation, a slab of marble taken from the quarry. You're brought to the artist's workshop. So you've been, you've been set apart, set aside, saved, you might say. But you're still a rough cut slab. You have to be worked on, chiseled, sculpted according to the artist's image to be complete. And likewise, at salvation, we, we are saved. We are fully justified, set apart by the Lord. There's no changing that. But God still wants to see the image of Christ he put in us come out of us. In this life, that's the work we call sanctification, which he'll complete, but we are called to engage in as well. 
This helps explain what Paul said back in verse 10. He said, we have laid aside the old self. We have put on the new self. But notice about the new self, that new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We're new, but not complete or perfect or fully conformed to Christ's image. But this then is our focus in Christian living to see that salvation that God has worked in us be worked out of us, to come out of us, to display itself in our thoughts, our behaviors, our actions, our attitudes. Remember, wasn't this the goal of Paul's ministry? Let me go back to Colossians 1, verse 28. He mentions his own mission, which really should be the mission of all Christians in life and ministry. He says, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man, And teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Perfect, mature. And this should be the goal of our own lives as well. So getting back to verse 12 here in Colossians 3, Paul is going to expand upon what that image looks like. We are to be conformed in Christ's image who is in us, end of verse 11. But what does that image look like? Well, Paul's going to paint that picture in the verses that follow. So that that sets up verses 12 through 14. Now, all that being said, before Paul gets there, before he gets to paint that picture of what this new image should look like, he just can't help himself from inserting one more little note on the basis of the new self, the basis of Christian living. Look again at verse 12. He doesn't just say, so... Put on a heart of compassion. He doesn't say that. He says, so then, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. You see, you just can't help but tie together how we live the way we do with why we live the way we do. And although we've heard it many times, well, we're going to hear it again. Why should we put on a heart of compassion, kindness, so on. Well, here he says, this time because we've been chosen of God, holy and beloved. That's why. So let's first explore this. This is the basis of the new self. Starts with this word in verse 12, chosen. It's electos in the Greek. We get the word elect from it. In a very straightforward manner, Paul's explaining why you should put on these godly attitudes. And the main reason is you've been chosen by God. He then modifies that with holy and beloved. That God in choosing us, he made us holy, which in turn means set us apart. He made us to be his people, distinct from the world, consecrated unto him in true worship. And he set his special love upon us to accomplish this. This was all undeserved, all by his grace. You know, there's some parallels here with Israel. You know, the church as the new covenant people of God maintains some parallels with Israel, the old covenant people of God. In the Old, in the old Testament, God chose Israel to be his holy and beloved people, right? Abraham did not choose God. And the nation of Israel did not choose God. Rather, God chose them. Why? Well, not because they were more numerous or more righteous than the nations around them, but simply because he unconditionally chose to set his love upon them. God himself testified of his choice. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. He says to the nation, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples. Who are on the face of the earth. And so it goes now with the church. Everyone in the true church, everyone who has true faith in Christ, is there because they were likewise chosen of God, holy and beloved. Just like the text says. And this point is hammered often in scripture. For example, if you flip back to Ephesians 1, you look at verses 4 and 5, it's just crystal clear. It mentions how God chose us 
in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. And it says in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, just, just by his will. Do we choose God? Of course we do. No one gets saved without choosing God. We're saved by faith, right? And that involves a decision of the will. It's a real choice. It's just that scripture teaches you will not and you cannot make that choice if God first doesn't make you spiritually alive and raise the spiritual dead to new life. God must first do that and enable you to choose him and respond in a genuine saving faith. And God does that for his elect. Listen to Acts 13, 48. Paul preached the gospel to some Gentiles. And it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's a pretty clear verse. How many of those Gentiles believed? Well, as many as had been appointed to eternal life. Some people get hung up on this point, even though it's, it's crystal clear in scripture. But consequently, they then fail to grasp the significance of God choosing us. They never even get there. But have you ever stopped to ask, like, why are we even told this? Why has God revealed in scripture so often that he has chosen us? We're his chosen people. There's a point. And the point is that it's meant to showcase God's amazing grace And it's also to overstate our privileged yet undeserved position. And that in turn should drive us to holy living. And knowing that we've been chosen and made holy in God's eyes, we are compelled to live up to that calling. You know, it's not surprising that right after God tells Israel that he chose them, he says this, this back in Deuteronomy 7 verse 11. He says, therefore, he says, in light of this, therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments, which I am commanding you today to do them. God doesn't say, hey, you need to do all these things. Then you can be my holy chosen people. No, he said, I choose you first. You're my holy people. Now live this way because I've made you holy. Now live this way. And Paul here in Colossians 3 saying pretty much the same thing. To the church, because we are chosen of God, holy and beloved. Well, therefore, we should keep his commands, walk in his ways. You know, as a simple takeaway here, you need to realize there are two types of religious people. There are some who are are desperately working to try and set themselves apart. And others who realize they've been set apart by grace through faith, and they work just out of thanksgiving and worship. You know, there are some people who don't recognize God's grace, and instead they rely on self and pride. They believe they have to do the works of righteousness, that they might set themselves apart. They have to make themselves holy to earn a place with God. But we know that's an impossible task. It's like trying to drain a lake with a bucket, but more water flows in than than comes out. Instead, you need to recognize that there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. You can't make yourself holy enough to dwell with him. How can we really be holy like God is holy? That's just impossible. And so rightly did Isaiah realize in Isaiah 6 that he did not belong in God's presence. Neither do we. But you see, with Isaiah, God chose him. God called him. And with that calling, God made him holy by grace. By grace, God set him apart, purified him, consecrated him. Then and only then, God used him. And Isaiah worked for God. And so it goes for us. We are people saved by free grace per God's choosing And that's a truth we're told that we might rehearse it in our minds every day because it's it's the basis of the new self. It's the basis of Christian living. Why we do the things we do. 
just because, well, God chose us and called us. Each morning, you would do well to remember, no, I have been saved by God's grace. Why me? I can't say. But in Christ, God set his love on me. He set me apart to serve him, to enjoy him, to follow Christ. He gave me eternal life as a free gift. He made me new. That that's who I am now. And therefore, I need to live this day accordingly. Each day, reapprehend these truths and they will help you see things clearly that you might live rightly before God. If you don't know this about me, I'm nearly blind. Like if I take out my contacts, I couldn't even make out you people in the front row. I wouldn't know who you are. Like I'm, I'm pretty much blind. And so when I wake up, having taken out my contacts at nighttime, you know, the world is a complete blur to me. I must immediately reach for my glasses to bring the world in focus or I can see nothing. Well, likewise, though, because of our flesh, the spiritual world very quickly becomes blurry to us. What's true and false? What's right and wrong? And how quickly we lose sight. But each morning, you should reach for the glasses of truth, God's word, through which we see the world rightly. We see the world as God sees, as it truly is. We need to be reminded of the basis of our new self every day. If you're in Christ by faith, who are you? Well, you're chosen of God. You're holy and beloved. So how are you going to live that day? And if you get all this, what comes next will naturally flow out of you. And so we find secondly, the attitudes of the new self. We can move on now. Number two, the attitudes of the new self. Now, back to verse 12, we can really get into the image of Christ that God wants to see formed in us. So back to verse 12. He says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Remember back in verse 5 and verse 8. Paul listed five vices of the old self. Just so happened to be sins which tear people apart. For example, verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Well, here in verse 12, he, he counters that with, with five virtues of the new self, which just so happen to be those which, which draw people together. So let's look at these, you may say, five articles of clothing for the new self. And I want you to pay special attention to how all of these are perfectly modeled by Christ. Let's just cover these one by one. First, we're told to put on a heart of compassion. The word compassion speaks of having pity on someone, showing mercy to someone. This is where, not as a pretension, but from the depths of your heart, you are moved to mercy for those in need. You have a deep-seated heart of compassion for others. This compassion is especially needed for those who are suffering. Now, the ancient world was a cold, ruthless, merciless place. The weak, the elderly, the disabled were discarded, left to fend for themselves. It's recorded that Romulus, the founder of Rome, he told his people to let their children who were deformed to die by exposure. And that later became a part of Roman law. But Christ came into this dark world full of genuine compassion and pity. He saw the sick, the suffering, the weak, the elderly, the blind, the deformed, the disfigured. He was moved to compassion for them. And, and he met their needs. And see, so we're called to show the same compassion just toward those around us who suffer. In addition, we need to extend compassion, not just to sufferers, but also to sinners. A special compassion must be reserved for those even who sin against you. It's all too easy to harden your heart against those who wound you. But we find the Lord himself weeping over Jerusalem. I mean, they were hardened in rebellion and unbelief, but he still had pity 
for them. Or think of Joseph, who sees his brothers who had betrayed him and sold him into slavery, but still he's moved to compassion. He forgives them. And especially in the church, while never excusing sin, we must always retain a, a type of compassion for the sinner and for the lost and lead them to Christ. Secondly, you must put on kindness. Kindness. Do you understand this word kindness? Just just think of its opposite. Think of the unkind, the harsh, the abrasive. I don't know why, but Ebenezer Scrooge came to my mind from Dickens' Christmas Carol. And he was like a man covered in thorns that anyone who comes close to him just gets pricked and hurt. You know, first, you know the story. His nephew invites him to Christmas dinner and says, Merry Christmas, to which Scrooge replies, What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Then two men come looking for donations for the poor. And Scrooge refuses, saying the poor are better off dead and they would decrease the surplus population. Finally, his destitute clerk, Bob Cratchit, asks for Christmas off. It's the one day of the year he he gets off. And Scrooge comments, a poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. You know the story. It's pretty much the epitome of unkind. And so now just to think of the opposite of that, or think of Scrooge after his transformation. He becomes gentle, kind, benevolent. He cares for others. He sees those in need. He puts them ahead of himself. You know, one lexicon to find this kindness. It's the grace which pervades the whole nature, mellowing all which would have been harsh and austere. End quote. You know, such kindness seems fairly lost in our culture. As people become more and more obsessed with themselves, they, they care less and less about other people. And they might be kind, but only to, to those who might benefit them in return. But in Christ, we're called to extend kindness even to those who oppose us. This is part of the image of God. Several times, this very word is used to describe God's own kindness to sinners. Listen to Luke 6, 35 through 36, where Christ said, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the most high for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now, of course, we know God's kindness and mercy towards sinners. It's not going to last forever. There's going to be a day of reckoning, but you know, that's God's place. Leave vengeance and judgment to him. Our place, we are called in the church simply to be kind to all. Third on this list, you have humility. Humility. You know, to the Greeks, everything about this word was a negative. There's nothing good about humility to the Greeks. It was a vice. Lowliness was a cardinal sin. To be humble was to be weak and insignificant, feeble. And rather, pride was extolled. Kind of sounds like today, that the one who boasts and promotes self gets ahead while the meek and the lowly are left behind. But as you know, to God, humility is the chief virtue. For God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And Lord Jesus himself came displaying this essential characteristic. In Philippians 2, we're reminded how he humbled himself. Both in taking on a human nature, coming to earth, and also then just in dying on the cross for us. And that the self-giving example of Jesus becomes our gold standard. It's especially true regarding how we are to relate to one another in the church, which is the body of Christ. That's why Philippians 2 also instructs us, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. We need to put on this humility with one another as well. Fourth, now, 
So we go through this list of attitudes of the new self. Fourth, he says, put on gentleness. Your translation might have meekness. And both meekness and gentleness in English connote a sense of weakness. But that's not so in the Greek. Gentleness here, it's all about power under control. I mean, think of the loud, boisterous, belligerent, angry man. That man is not more powerful. He is weaker, for he does not have the power to control his emotions, his passions, his reactions. He is weak. But the gentle person, however, proves a far greater strength in their self-control, their ability to rein in their passions, their emotions, their reactions, even in the face of affliction. And once again, Christ was the epitome of this gentleness. He cared for people like a good shepherd. A bruised reed he would not break. He would rather suffer wrong than inflict harm. To the world, that, that describes a weak, spineless pushover. But Jesus was merely reflecting on earth that his trust in God. God would judge. There were, of course, several times where Jesus displayed a righteous indignation. And appropriately so. He had literal tolerance for wolves. But he was always gentle with his sheep. Though they might not listen, they might go astray, they might get into trouble. Still, he cared for them with a gentle spirit. And again, we need to show that same gentleness toward one another. And that attitude is most needed, especially when others wrong you. It's very easy to be nice and gentle with, with nice people. But when others hurt you, it's far easier for your wrath to come out. After all, that person harmed you. They, they deserve to be harmed in return. But you see, the meek person, they, they trust the Lord. They control their emotions and reactions. They control the flesh and they, they bear with one another. The meek person is more concerned with helping that other person be restored to the Lord than in getting even. This is how we must treat one another as Paul instructed us over in Galatians 6.1. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. A spirit of gentleness. Well, last but not least, we're called here to put on patience. Last, patience. Macrothemia, the word in Greek, it means long-suffering, forbearance. You see how this is tied to gentleness. Again, it, it's easy to be patient with nice people, people who benefit you. But what about difficult people? What about people who rub you the wrong way, who offend you? That's the real challenge, to still be patient. We're not given any escape clause here. Just, just be patient. This is talking about the person who has a long fuse. Or put it this way, you know, everyone has buttons, Right? And if you push enough of their buttons in the right sequence, they will explode. They will lose their cool. They will lose their patience. We all have those buttons, and typically our spouses know just the right buttons to press. And that's when the sins of verse 8 come out. But the patient person, this is the one who has a long, complicated series of buttons that must be pressed before they lose it. This person will endure ill treatment for a long time before lashing out. And this once again reflects the image of God. Thankfully, God is patient even with sinners. I mean, to God, we were unworthy, unholy, unlovely, but he was long-suffering with our rebellion. That's what Romans 2.4 says. It says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And thank God he's patient with us amidst our wrongdoing. And now we're called to pick up and put on this patience that we might be like him. We're to be long-suffering. So all of these, these are part of our calling. These are part of our choosing as God's people. These five attitudes should pervade our new hearts. 
And as we're empowered by the Spirit, they should, well, then come out of us. And they direct how we live, how we act in this world. And keep in mind, this list here in verse 12, it's, it's essentially just another list of the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't explicitly say that, but three of the five terms Paul specifically repeats over in Galatians 5.22 when he lists the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, we who have received the Spirit, we've been made new by the Spirit. We're now to walk by the Spirit, and then we'll bear the fruit of these heart attitudes. This fruit is pleasing to the Lord. It binds together the church. These are just essential attitudes that, that must come out of us if we are to grow in Christ's image. And when they do come out of us, it leads to, number three, the actions of the new self. From the attitudes of the new self, we go right into number three, the actions of the new self. In the attitudes of verse 12, they should all translate into action. That action can take many forms. But in verse 13, Paul highlights two actions in particular that should give expression to the heart attitudes of verse 12. So let's look at these, these two key actions of the new self. Go into verse 13. After putting on these virtues, he says we should be, verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. We should be known by both of these actions. First, we have bearing with one another. This term, I think, really captures putting the five heart attitudes together and putting them into practice especially when it comes to dealing with difficult people. This is what it looks like in action, bearing with one another. We might say today, putting up with one another, but without the negative connotations. This is not a bemoaning, begrudging tolerance. This is a blessed forbearance. As he's going to say in verse 14, this all needs to be covered with love. But really, I think this action right here, bearing with one another, It's got to be one of the most important yet least talked about practices of the church. If you don't have the five attitudes of verse 12, you will not have this forbearance. If you don't have this forbearance, you're not going to have a church. That's because the church is populated by the Lord's design with, with very different people. It's the most diverse body there is. It's not defined by race, status, gender, politics, wealth, language, ethnicity. The only distinction that matters in God's church is in Christ, not in Christ. That, that's all that matters. But the result is that an actual local church may be filled with very, very different people from all walks of life with vastly different personalities. Now, the Lord aims to use this uniquely gifting us, putting us together for our growth and service. But given our weakness of the flesh, now our petty differences quickly can become sources of division. And so if you don't have this forbearance, this tolerance, this putting up with one another in a blessed way, if you don't have that, you are only going to be satisfied when you find a church where everyone else is 100% like you. And if you haven't learned yet, you are not going to find that church. Just think about the petty things that can divide us in the church. You sit next to that person at a potluck and they chew with their mouth open the whole time. (laughs) Or, hey, that couple over there does or does not vaccinate their children. The person behind you during praise sings way off key and is really annoying. Or that person came to the church with tattoos on every square inch of their body. Those kids are wild. They they irritate you. Or that preacher is not your favorite. That worship leader never picks your favorite songs. I mean, the list goes on and on of all the faults we can find with one another. And if you let them, they will divide you. But the point is, you must not let them. You must bear with one another. God in his wisdom has put us in a diverse body filled with many people with whom we would not normally associate. But he deems to use this for our mutual growth and sanctification. 
And furthermore, what unites us, Christ, is far stronger than that which divides us. And so for the unity of our purpose, mission, and growth, we're called to to bear with one another, to put up with one another in love. Instead of getting angry or upset or so bothered by people, instead of grumbling and complaining about others in the church, well, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And that will lead you to bear with one another. And if you still have a hard time bearing with others in the church, just remember, chances are there are several people who have a hard time bearing with you. (laughs) Now, you're a sinner too. And you and I still have plenty of rough edges that can rub people the wrong way. This forbearance is a two-way street. But the only way we stay together and grow together is if we bear with one another. This is in the present. This is continually, perpetually, lovingly. Make this your resolve. But you see, it's not enough just to bear with one another. We have to add to that this resolve to forgive one another in verse 13. And that's because our differences are not always so small and petty, but sometimes sin gets involved where we truly sin against one another or offend one another or hurt one another. And the easy response then is to divide, to isolate, to exact revenge But no, we're still called to forbear and then forgive. This covers, Paul says in verse 13, whoever has a complaint against anyone. That word complaint makes it sound kind of trivial, but the word is talking about any fault, any blame. And there's going to be plenty of times when another person, even in church, they are at fault for wounding you or offending you or sinning against you. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to hate them or slander them? Are you going to get even with them? And we're called to forgive them. How? Well, he says, you know, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. Just, you know, just the same thing the Lord did for you. There's really no way out of this. There's no wiggle room here. I mean, our, our standard of forgiveness is the Lord's standard of forgiveness. And so how did he forgive us? Completely, freely, unconditionally, at great personal cost. And we are called to forgive others in the same way. Look, you know, in any situation where two or more sinners gather together, be it in the home or in the church, there will be complaints, offenses, and sins exchanged. And sin divides, but grace covers and grace unites. And so we need to be showing grace, not law, but grace to one another. Forgive faults as the Lord did for us. Now I tell you here in verse 12 and 13, Paul, he's really just summarizing. But I think these five attitudes and these two actions, they really hit the nail on the head. And they capture the essence of the new living that should come out of us. This describes the new self, the actions, the attitudes of the new self. And I think they all then culminate together in this last aspect of the new self. Number four, to finish the bond of the new self. The bond of the new self. This is verse 14. Look there now. He says, beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Here we see how the chief fruit of the spirit becomes the chief thing we much must uh, put on. Not surprisingly, but notice he says beyond all these things or above all. This helps us think through love. Love is not merely one more virtue to add to the list. It is rather that the supreme virtue, it's the one that ties all the other ones together. So you can picture love like like a belt or a sash that holds together all the other articles of clothing. Which means you're not going to be able to show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience with others if you don't have love. If you don't love them. Do you actually love 
your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you actually love fellow believers in this church, flaws and all? I mean, if you don't, forget about it. If you don't, though, beware. That sounds more like the old self. And that would be a problem. Because the new self, which has been remade in the image of God, who is love, is going to be known by this love. It's, it's going to come out of you. It should, as you cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. And love, in turn, Paul says, is the perfect bond of unity. And God, as you know, masterfully designed the human body comprised of so many different unique parts, but they all come together and work together as one, enabling us just to live and to work and to do so much. Just take the skeleton, for example. There are 206 bones in the human skeleton, and they give us our strength and our structure. But if there's no way to unite them or tie them together, we we just couldn't even move. And so we are, are filled with ligaments, which unite or bond our bones together and enable us to be, well, one body. And that's what love is here. Love is like the ligament or the glue that holds the body of Christ together. You have all these different people and oftentimes pulling in different directions. But the Lord aims to use love to keep this body together, to hold us together, that we might work together for his mission. It's the only way. Love is the only way. Love is, is greater than all. And the Lord Jesus, again, modeled this for us. He came because of love. He gave himself because of love. His love for us was not merely warm fuzzies, but out of a deep affection for his people, he then went to action and, and laid down his life for us. And that's our pattern in the church. First John 3.16 says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. So we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is what's going to unite the church together, which as we found is 100% essential for our worship, for our witness, for our spiritual growth. None of that's happening if we're not united And so we need, beyond all these things, we need to put on love. You know, look at this passage this morning, Colossians 3, 12 through 14. In many ways, like it's short, it's simple. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. There's really nothing complicated about this. But you see, texts like these are so crucial because they capture the essence of of the new living that must emerge from the new self. And you have to come to see what the Lord is doing with this thing called the church. He, in his plan, he's gathering together his elect from all the tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. And he's putting them together in this one body. He's knitting them together. He's filling them with his Holy Spirit. He's gifting them. Why? That together as one, they might fulfill his mission, which in part is to take his gospel to the ends of the earth, and another part just to build up one another fully into Christ's image. And when the church functions as intended, as one, it can be so powerful. But the Apostle Paul knows then, as now, that it's just so easy for people to divide. We have so many differences. But the thing is, in Christ, all that stuff doesn't really matter anymore. If we can just, by the Spirit, put on a heart of compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It will lead us to bear with others who are different, forgive others who sin against us, cover all things with love. That's how you'll see a healthy, strong body emerge. And I'll tell you again, it's it's so much easier to avoid people. People can be difficult or bothersome, just annoying, sometimes outright mean, hurtful. 
And so the recourse of many is just to avoid people. Like be alone, isolate, don't engage. And I think for many of you, if you're honest with yourself, this is what you do. Perhaps to cope, you're just, you're just alone. Yeah, you don't mind coming to a Sunday morning gathering because you don't actually have to interact with people. You can just be an observer, but that's about it. But I hope the Lord presses on your heart this morning that that's not the way it should be. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community with God's people. As don't give in to fear and don't give in to the flesh. Don't isolate. Don't turn away. Instead, put on love, draw near to the Lord, draw near to his people. Then and only then will you find just the power, the joy, and the growth that God intended for his people, all of which you will not find alone. Pray with me. Our gracious God who is in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. At times, it can be so simple and so straightforward, yet it instructs, it convicts, it challenges us. We need that, Lord. We need your word like glasses put on every day to help us see the world as it is. We see you, our good and gracious, our holy God who, who made us, called us, chose us, gave us Christ, all by your grace. That alone is enough to compel us to, to live our lives for you, to offer up our entire lives on the altar, not because we're trying to earn anything, but simply because we've been remade in Christ's image and we're delighted to now walk in his ways. But we still need the truth to guide us for the flesh so often takes us away. And so guide us with these words this morning. We see what the new self is meant to be, meant to look like from actions to attitudes. Let us put these on, Lord. Help us by your spirit to now put this into practice. We might be a local church that is truly knit together, that is strong, that's filled with love, and has a powerful mission of witnessing and worshiping and growing up in Christ's image. You aim to do so much through us. And uh, you, you call us, though, to partake, to do our part. This is our part. So convict us, lead it to change, Lord, and may we worship you with our response this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.